Hello. Hey, how's hey, it going, man? How's it going, buddy? I'm doing all right. How about I'm, you? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. No, no complaints. Let's see Whoops. if I can bring uh, Mike into this as well. What? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you what me? Do whatever I want. You're not the boss of me now. You're going to get the bossy right upside your head. Oh, that's what she said. <laughs> What's going on, man? Doing fine. How's everybody tonight? Doing fine. Long time no talk to. It has Doing been a good. week. What's happening, Mike? <laughs> it's been yeah. a week. <laughs> You're right. It has been only a week, hasn't it? Feels like longer. Yes. Well, Avengers came out, and that kind of distorted time there for a while. It did. Time did you both go? Space. Yes. Oh, yeah, I went, dude. Yeah, we went on Friday night, and uh, the you know the least comic booky person, my daughter, as we were driving home, she wanted to go back and see it again. Wow, so that was pretty cool. As they yeah. say, wild whores couldn't have kept me away. Not horses, mind <laughs> your whores. No, we. Uh, I, I I originally wasn't going to get to see it because we just didn't have the money to go out, and. Friday morning, a friend of mine called and left this very cryptic message on my answering machine. I basically said, uh, Mike, this is Jacob. Call me back as soon as you can. And the last time he did that, somebody died, uh -oh. literally. So mm. I called him right back. He's like, what are you doing tonight? Working. What time do you get off? 10. Okay. What are you doing tomorrow? Nothing. We're going to see Avengers. <laughs> but I don't, I'm paying. But Rachel wants to go. That's fine. You have to see this film. So... So uh, yeah. I under I'm led to believe you uh, you liked it a little bit. Holy crap! Oh my god! <laughs> it had everything I have ever wanted in a comic book film, all in one place. It was unapologetic in its in its both um, enthusiasm and even in sometimes its uh, its cheesiness, and I liked that. Mm -hmm. I liked that a whole lot. Yeah, there was just and and as a Hulk guy, that last, my God, when he grabbed Loki, yeah, that was so awesome, wasn't it? And just <laughs> flung him around. Did you guys get to hear what he said to Loki though? Puny, puny God. God. See, my theater was so loud, I didn't hear that when that was happening. Though the funniest was, uh, God, there's just this one guy, like right there at the beginning when Cap puts his shield down when Loki's going to kill that dude right at the beginning of the film in Germany, this mm -hmm. one guy yelled out, hell yeah, and then I realized, oh, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I I had several big old geek outs, and I didn't give a shit if people, you know, I mean, I tried not to be a you know an annoying dick about it, but there were several times when I was whooping and hollering, but the one that actually did, I embarrassed myself, was, uh, was the reveal at the end of who the, the next villain's going to be. I, I was like, holy shit. And then I realized I actually said it out loud and like everybody around me was cracking up. So I guess they liked it. You know, nobody was like, hey, shut up, asshole. Um, one, of, one of my only complaints when I was watching it was that I was sitting there saying, with this whole rich Marvel universe to, to pull from, they have some nameless, faceless, hooded guy who's the bad guy here, you know, behind right, the scenes. Right, yeah. So then when they revealed it was Thanos, I just thought it was the most awesome thing. Psych. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was great. And the thing about that is, is in two swoops, in two moves, Marvel just completely screwed over a Justice League film. Because you can't have Darkseid now. 
because they'll be accused of just ripping off Mar of the Avengers and Thanos. And you can't have Darkseid using the anti-life equation that wipes out people's free will, which was really like their best move for a Justice League movie. Dude, honestly, I think they're years away from a Justice League movie. I think they're so far away from a Justice League movie that anything they do now is going to just look like they're um, trailing Marvel, which is honestly what they're doing. But I mean, it, 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 you know, they might as well do what they want to do because they're going to get accused of that anyway. You know, that is true, but. But you, still you, you look at the, the equation Marvel used, though, coming out with a different movie with each, with each guy and then coming out with the team movie and having every one of them be successful. I mean, the odds against that are phenomenal. So for DC to do the same thing now and to be successful as well, uh, unfortunately, it's really unlikely because I just kept I've been waiting for Marvel to stumble. Not that I've wanted it to happen, but I've expected right. that at some point they were gone. Yeah, I mean, who, who has six hits in a row? You know, mm -hmm. nobody does to me, that. To me, the weakest of the lot was Iron Man 2, and I like that a lot. But every, That's interesting, because most, most people say Incredible Hulk, and I loved Incredible Hulk. See, so to not, me, I, I feel like to a certain degree they've built on each other, because to me, the weakest one is the first Iron Man, which I thought was a phenomenal movie, and they only got better from there. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah. Okay. That works. You know, it's funny, because it's one of these things where I, every movie I see... Like, if you ask me which one was my favorite, it's usually the most recent one that came out. Right. And uh, I, when I go back, though, I think, I think if I look at it, if I pull myself back and I look at them, you know, totally evenly, Iron Man might be the best of the lot. Wow. I, I, it's not that I disagree. It's, um, so yeah, a lot of it for me, too, is I'm not, it's not even so much I'm not the biggest Iron Man fan in the world, which is what I was starting to say. Um, so much as, uh, I'm, I'm really not much of a fan of Robert Downey Jr. And Robert Downey Jr. to me, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just, I, I, maybe it's some sort of prejudice against him or something. But to me, Robert Downey Jr. doesn't play Tony Stark or Sherlock Holmes or any of these. He plays Robert Downey Jr. And so, he, you know, I find it annoying. And thank God that for the most part, he doesn't do what I was afraid he was going to do in the Avengers, which was, you know, overshadow everybody else and, and hog the movie. He, it is a little too Iron Man heavy for my taste, but in fairness, he's the, he started the whole thing. He's still the big box office draw and he's had two movies, whereas everybody else has only had one. So, I mean, you, you got to make those concessions, you know, and not, I mean, he didn't do anything that I didn't like. So, you know, it worked. And I was worried about the same thing, but everybody was like equal. Pitch perfect on the screen. Too, yeah. And no, I, I have, oh, go ahead. And it was just amazing to see everyone to get, like in the scene where and I love that they didn't come out and say it. The scene where they're all in the little laboratory room arguing with each other. And I got the idea that they had some mistrust already, but Loki's staff was messing with them. Yes, yeah. And had, making them yeah. kind of drunk. Yeah. Because at one point, Thor just out of nowhere goes, you are all so small. And, it's <laughs> just, and uh, even Tony's like, what am I saying? But 
watching that scene, every single one of them dominated the room, and they all came together as this great ensemble. And really and truly, the Hulk freaking stole the show at the end. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't steal it at the end. He stole it from the minute he became the Hulk. <laughs> I mean, it, it was... I'm, I'm hoping that that inspires him to do another Hulk movie, because well, I don't they're think talking that they about have plans it of it. The talk changed over the last week. Monday of last week, or Tuesday of last week... People are like, hey, is there going to be a Hulk film? And Kevin Feige, the guy that's responsible for all the Marvel movies over at Disney, uh, is just like, no, you know, we don't we don't have any plans right now. Uh, you know, we want to focus on the other ones. And by the end of the week, it was like, yeah, in about 2015, we'll probably have the Hulk film. Mm. <laughs> it was just like, ha ha. But um, <laughs> what, uh, what Im- the, the surprise of the movie to me and the thing that I should have seen coming... But when they're on the helicarrier and he changes the first time, I'm like, wait a second, are we going to get a Hulk-Thor fight? And then we oh. got a Hulk-Thor fight. And then the, the punch of Thor later on oh, yeah. just broke down the whole theater. Everybody was hysterical. Oh, it was so good. You know, what? what like two things uh, that come to mind is one, I don't know if it's true or not, but I had heard that uh, when they first talked about doing this, that Robert Downey Jr. was a little full of himself, and he came out and said, you know, if you're going to do this movie, it has to be basically Iron Man-centric, and that they actually wrote a script, they agreed with him, and they wrote a script that was, and they all, including Robert Downey Jr., agreed, that's not the way to go, and then they revised it to the script that they actually produced. And uh, just, go ahead, Mike, what? No, no, go ahead, I was interrupting you. But the, the other thing, just to, on a totally unrelated point, I, I like the fact that they stayed true kind of the Avengers origin and that, you know, if you go back to Avengers number one, Loki was manipulating the Hulk, which ended up forming the group, which is kind of the story that we had here, which I thought mm-hmm. was really cool. Yeah. The, um, God, what was I about to say? I completely lost track. Ah, it'll come back to me. If it was important, I would have remembered it. No, I, uh, I, I just, uh, I was just happy throughout the... Oh, Agent Coulson. Um, did you guys get to see any of the little short films that he did? Yeah, That I were did. on the Thor and the Captain America DVD, Scott? Did you no. get to see those? Uh, there's one where you see Coulson and another S.H.I.E.L.D. agent at a diner basically talking about the fact that someone high up wants the abomination on the Avengers initiative, but they think it's a really bad idea. But the higher-ups are like, well, Blonsky's a soldier and probably more controllable. So they're like, well, how are we going to get the... How can we have this happen but them turn us down? And it's like, well, we got to get somebody to offer it to General Ross that he hates. And then they showed the scene at the end of Hulk where Tony Stark goes to talk to to Ross. <laughs> and then it comes yeah. back to him. Okay, that worked. <laughs> so, but there's another one where... Coulson's on his way to Thor's hammer. In fact, that's what it's called. A funny thing happened on the way to Thor's hammer, and he stops at this gas station, a Roxxon oil gas station, by oh. the way. Uh, and two guys hold the place up, and he takes them down, and it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, those those shorts they could uh, they could make a couple more of those. Those those just add so much to it. You know, I'm really gonna miss. The the uh, Nick Fury joke now, you know, now it's played out. You know, you can't you can't do that joke anymore. You know what? 
they could take that and they could spin it in a completely new direction because you know what they should do now with the solo films now they should keep doing them but add the spin that it's one of the supervillains and i i think the like one of the the two natural ones that came to my mind is either the red skull or baron zemo recruiting the villain of the picture for the masters of evil down the road, say like Avengers three would be the masters of evil would be. That's the- brilliant. That could be awesome. I think that would be pretty freaking cool. My, uh, my wife came up with a really cool way that agent Coulson isn't dead. How's that? Well, she goes, you know, you watch that scene and you know, he talks to fury, but when agent Coulson is announced as dead, it's through the intercom system. Everyone hears it. Honeywell hit on the same exact thing. So to Rachel's mind, Coulson is allowing his death to be faked for the moment. Right. To pull the team together. To pull the team together. Yep. Yeah. Chris sold me on that because when he first started talking, I was like, no, come on. But then I listened to his argument and I, I was pretty convinced. Yeah. We'll have to, I'll have to tell Chris that Rachel had the same idea. And this is also yeah. how awesome my wife is. Our original plan was to see it this Friday, right? We were going to do a double feature with that and dark shadows and go out to dinner. It was going to be this huge date night or date day for Rachel and I, and we're driving home and I'm like, well, at least we got Dark Shadows to look forward to. And she basically goes, you want to go see it again on Friday? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Because I haven't seen a superhero film twice in the theater since Spider-Man 1. So, remember the last one I did that with. Uh, and the only reason I saw that twice is my friend Ben from high school came to town. And we went and saw that. And we saw, because that was like a week or so after episode two came out and we hadn't seen it yet. So we went to see that and Spider-Man. I saw, I saw the first Iron Man twice now that I'm thinking about it. Cause I saw that with my buddies from work and then I had to go see it oh, again with my son. Duh. Superman returns. I saw I, that. I only the saw that. Yeah. I only saw that one once. See for yeah, it was I, at a dollar theater. So I don't know if that really counts. They gave you a dollar to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The big thing for me with this one, the, the, the thing that I took away that had me most excited is I literally did feel like I was 12 because I can't, I mean, maybe if I really sat down like with a list and, and really poured through it and really put my brain to it, I'd come up with a, another movie. But just on a quick recollection, I can't think of a movie literally since The Empire Strikes Back that I walked away on such a high and had absolutely not one complaint, you know, not not one nitpick, not one complaint, you know, I mean, any, any criticisms I have or anything basically fall into the realm of, you know, uh, not even a nitpick so much as, uh, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It's not like a quibble or a nitpick or a, or a dislike. It's just like, an observation more than anything, you know, like, well, you know, they could have done that, but no, I love what they did kind of thing. You know what I I mean? I'm so glad you're saying that because my biggest fear, and this was a fear for you, mind you. So take that, take it as one friend worrying about another friend (laughs) is I got done with the film and I'm like, I so hope Scott likes this. God damn it. Chris said the same thing to me. (laughs) I was like, Jesus guys. I mean, am I that bad? And he was like, no, no, you can be is what he said. So you know what pisses me off, Scott, is when you don't like something. And I've told you this before. Usually you can articulate why you don't like it. 
and you'll take something I did like and you'll convince me that it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's like, boy, I like this, but Scott doesn't. So now I'm not going to like it anymore either. Oh, uh, you shouldn't. Or, <laughs> or you allow me to articulate a dislike with something, <laughs> i.e. the Nolan Batman films. That it's like, wow, yeah, it, they aren't all that good. I, uh, it's not just me. I'm not alone in this. But for me, I was more worried that you wouldn't enjoy it because I thought it was so good and I thought it was something you would enjoy that if you didn't enjoy it, it'd be like, oh, man. <laughs> he, yeah, I really I wanted him to like too. that. But, uh, but uh, because I remember, the only reason that made me think of that, Scott, is that I texted you last summer right after I got out of Thor. And I said, you're really going to like that. And you're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And you ended up liking the film. So, uh, but it, it was that kind of like, well, sometimes there are, he has problems with things. And Paul's got another good point too. I was kind of afraid you'd point out problems. And then this, this movie that I now would fall think apart. Is, yeah. Is the, the best superhero film ever made because my God, see Superman, the movie, has that damn flying scene with Lois and Superman. It has See, Otis. No, Otis. Otis is fine. You know what? Otis was fine in 1978, but he's so dated. I, I cringe every time he walks onto the screen. Oh, Mr. Luthor. You know, it's just so horrible. Mr. Luthor, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's um, a bitty, bitty place. <laughs> I, I can't take That's the one thing. That's To me, that's the one failure in an otherwise beautiful movie. And do not think that I do not like the Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman films as much as I always have, because I will always love those films. Avengers just gave me everything I've ever, because every superhero film I go to see, there's this one thing I don't like. And it doesn't, and, and sometimes it's like more than one thing, but there's that one element that I'm like, wow, why, why'd they do that? The movie was going so well. And all throughout Avengers, I was waiting for that moment. Okay, here it comes. Oh, it's not there. See, okay, here. For, for me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. Uh, my quibble <laughs> my with the film is I don't like Captain America's helmet. Yeah. Oh, that didn't bother me. That was like my big, but that was like the, <laughs> that was me finding something. You know how I dealt with that? I, I, I took it as, as a, a, I'm not sure how to, how to verbalize it. Basically, to me, it's like a, a, a mental callback to the Reb Brown stuff, <laughs> which I never objected to. When I was a kid, I loved that shit. I watch it now and it's horrible, but I loved it when I was a kid. So in a weird, very, very strange way, I look at that and I kind of take it only because it reminds me of that. But uh, going into this, Cap was the one I was most worried about and and very, very pleased with how Cap came up. I thought he was excellent. Chris and, Evans commanded that group. Yes. Like, took control of it. And I'm like, and I bought it and i'm like that is so important for this because mm -hmm. cap is the leader cap is the one that tells the thunder god you go do this right my two you know? favorite scenes in the movie in, involved cap and it was when uh it was the nice little quiet scene where he got the joke he got the reference to the wizard yeah. of oz and i love that <laughs> I, I just love that that. Because that was so cap that he was kind of humble in that moment that, hey, I, I understood that. I have, I finally got something that you said. And I love that little moment. 
And then when, like you say, when he takes charge and starts barking orders and they snap into, and there's no quibbling, there's no arguing, they just follow his lead. I loved that shit because that was the scene I was convinced we weren't ever going to get. I thought for sure Robert Downey Jr. was going to be the leader of the Avengers. I, 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 I would have put money on Iron Man leading the team. You know and when they, Cap was the leader, I was like, yes, I love this movie. You know what's really great about that, though, is they really set that up that he kept saying, you know, he walked into that group like he was hot shit. But he kept saying, I'm not a soldier. I'm not a soldier. So he is in a in a battle situation. He is going to look to the guy that is the soldier for leadership. Right. Because, yeah, he's great with tech and he's a genius. And I loved, they had a freaking Tony Stark falls out of a plane and puts on the Iron Man armor moment in the film. And it, it played beautifully, just that whole sequence. But... Cap's the Cap's the leader because Cap has the 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 battlefield and they they did enough in Captain America where he was on a battlefield that it made sense that you know when shit's going down he's the one everyone's going to look to Thor the entire point of the Thor film is for him to be humble and throughout this entire th- yeah he's kind of arrogant when he shows up you know I'm taking Loki and I'm getting out of here but when push came to shove. Thor knew who to listen to on the battlefield. And Black Widow's just like, I'm just I'm just really glad Cap's here. <laughs> Black Widow was <laughs> awesome in the movie too. The way that yeah. the, I mean a couple of things. With with the scene, first scene when she's being held captive and they call her and then she oh, you know realizes great. she has to escape. But also even the scene when she plays Loki by pretending to cry. I just thought that was so great. But like, you know, you guys were saying no criticism at all. I was almost a little smug in my criticism of, you know, the nameless, faceless character, you know, and, and if they hadn't addressed it, it probably would have annoyed me down the road, too. I'd watch the movie and, and that would be the thing that I'd look to and say, why do they have this guy here? Why not have, you know, some Asgardian, you know, villain or something giving right. the troops. But then, you know, by, before the credits were over, you know, we knew it was Thanos and it just was awesome. So I had no criticism either. What's they cool took away f- my one criticism. What's cool for me is that you know they they did something you know something very cool happened. I don't know if it was purposeful or what, but the way the movie starts didn't give me a lot of confidence. I, I was very concerned because I didn't really care for the whole the the whole opener sequence prior to when the words of Avengers comes up to me is a, is an easily excised scene. So I was watching that going I'm not I'm not feeling this. Am, am I going to like this? I was like, "Damn, I've, I you know, I'm I'm so psyched for this movie and and I'm just not feeling it." And we get right up until and the and I was trying to find where the movie where I was sold and it was the helicarrier when the oh. when the little things come out and the turbines start to spin and I was like, holy shit, this thing it's gonna fly, and it and starts. I was thinking about Spider Man saying, you know, why are we going in the helicarrier? These things always get knocked out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, sure enough, I mean, I'm seeing that and I'm thinking to myself, you know, not only didn't I expect to see this in my lifetime, but if if somebody had told me when when you know after Iron Man, you know the end of Iron Man and Nick Fury shows up, that dude, give it a couple of years and there'll be a, a, a an actual helicarrier, you know, in one of them, I'd have, I'd have called him a liar. There's no way are we ever gonna see that on there. There's no way you can make that shit believable. People will laugh at that. 
And there it was. And I was just a kid, dude. I was I was such a little kid watching that and just jumping up and down and bouncing and clapping and screaming. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, and not only was it freaking there when it was about to fall, you were just like, "Holy shit, this thing's about to come down. This is bad news bears." I am glad that it didn't actually crash though. That's something I I feel like they need to that that would be like crashing the Enterprise in the very first movie. You know what I mean? That that's something they need to hold in yeah. reserve as a big old trump card to play because I remember when the first helicarrier crashed, at least I think it was the first one in in the She-Hulk graphic novel. That was a big freaking deal, you know? I mean, that was an epic Marvel Comics moment that holy shit the helicarrier crashed. I mean that was an event that reverberated through the other titles and that happened in a graphic novel. So I mean that's that's something I I, I wouldn't mind seeing it. I'm just glad that they pulled back and didn't have it in this movie. You know what I mean? It was enough mm. for me to to get it in the air. That was I just totally never ever expected that that for one that they'd have the balls to even attempt it, but that they'd actually succeed. I mean, I didn't hear anybody in the theater like going, "That's ridiculous," you know. I mean, you you bought it. I mean, it was really cool. Yeah, I I was just uh, I was just blown away. It was just it was everything I wanted that movie to be. Uh, I I I you know I had to struggle to find something bad to say about it. And in, and and in this day and age, where bitching on the internet is a freaking Olympic sport, uh, you know the the fact that everyone can come together and say this is done right, and it's like that proof that you. It, it's kind of funny because they were making a big deal that Kevin Feige, uh, the producer guy, was telling people that yeah, you know that um, the. Um, you know, Dark Knight. That was that was a comic book film done right. Okay, that's nice lip service, but at the same time, screw you. you we have just proven with a Marvel movie that it doesn't have to be dark. It doesn't have to be depressing. Right. It doesn't have to be you know you know so psychologically gripping that you don't like anybody on the screen. You don't have to suck the fun out of these things. Right. They can be pay attention. They can be a fun, big superhero film with people in costumes and people saying the word superhero and it not being them going, oh, you're a superhero. I mean, you know, he freaking straight up calls Cap a superhero at one point. And I was just like, awesome. That's exactly what I wanted in life. You know, someone to go, someone to be, and, and it was because it's Whedon. It's because Josh Whedon is a comic book fan that isn't Kevin Smith. Um... That has enough pull in Hollywood, and and you know what? If Whedon wasn't directing this, we would not have gotten any awesome Black Widow moments. She would have been relegated to the back of the room. But because Whedon was involved, we got like several really good scenes with her in it, and the entire and every even Hawkeye was awesome at the end of the film. <laughs> and I thought he was going to be the weak link, but you know they gave him a nice little arc to play with. So <laughs> he was the weak link, and he was still awesome. <laughs> That's how good it was. I mean, so. what amazes me about this, I mean, really, really genuinely amazes me is, I mean, when you get right down to it and you're honest with yourself, the the movie is is no less corny or cheesy or fantastic or unreal in a lot, I mean, a lot of the movie 
than some of the worst superhero movies that have been out there, like Batman and Robin and, you know, just all these other movies that people look at and just point to as just shit, you know? But what sells it is it just, it's, it's so earnest that it believes in itself. You know what I mean? So even the couple of, of awkward moments that it may have, it just powers right on through them and, and keeps moving and, and gives you something awesome to focus on right after the, 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 you know, something that may not deliver quite right. Or, you know, a perfect example, because uh, I was str- struggling to th- kind of think of one, when uh, Loki's about to blast what I presume was, was, a, was a Holocaust survivor in, in Germany in that one scene, and Cap leaps in and, def- and deflects the bolt with his shield, that looks a little cheesy. And I was kind of worried when that scene starts. I was like, ah, that doesn't look so good. But they just power on through it. And by the end of that fight, you're like, damn, that was awesome. You know, I mean, so that's what I mean. You know, even if there was, you know, just like a half second of a misstep or something that looked like it might be out of one of the, you know, the less awesome superhero movies, they, they just power right through it. And I love that. You know, they, they never stop to, you know, to, to winky, you know, mug for the camera shit, you know, that, like, you know, that's plagued so many other, you know, there's, there's none of that tongue in cheek. Yeah, we know this is ridiculous, but you know, we're going to give it a shot kind of shit that, that, I mean, a lot of superhero movies have suffered from that, you know, just not really believing it you know we're we're here to thrill the kids and and sell some action figures and you know call it a day kind of thing and this movie didn't do that i mean this movie didn't pander to kids and and pander to the toy sellers and and wink and nod at the adults in the audience and go yeah we know we're wearing spandex and we look ridiculous no they they sold it just like i mean the only comparison i can really think that's apt is is you know, Superman the movie and and uh, Donner's, you know, chant of, you know, verisimilitude, which this movie's got it in spades, you know? Well, we've been saying that for years. You treat, you, you, if the actors treat it like it's straight, like if they play it like it, it like it's just any other acting role, the audience will buy into it. The one thing I would have liked, and my friend Jacob hit me when I suggested this, but the one thing I think would have been really, really funny is if um, you had the scene where uh, Stark and uh, Captain America were talking about, like the um, you know the whole thing with the 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 shield taking the Hydra weapons and all that. I would have absolutely loved. If somebody would have said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You two stop with your tails of suspense, okay? We're just we're just going to move on from here." <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, but it, there, there weren't a lot of inside jokes or no. Easter eggs that I saw. With Whedon, that's really interesting to see because with Whedon, I was kind of expecting it to be, you know, all the inside jokes and stuff because he's a big comic geek. But they played it so straight. That it really, you know, to me, it really didn't matter. It was just like, okay, I, you know, I, I got a lot out of the film. But uh, they didn't play it so straight that they didn't stick in the funny scenes with, like, the Hulk beating the shit out of, the, of Loki. And, you know, I mean, the audience was cracking Thor. up. Yeah, <laughs> punching Thor. Or, or even, you know, 
Tony Stark's snarky comments, or you know, talking about the uh, what is it, the Schwami place or whatever, two blocks Dude, away. I still wanted shawarma at the end of that film. Shwarma. It's not even funny. <laughs> now, I, I just heard today that when they filmed that second uh, trailer or second end credit scene, that they did that six months after they had uh, yeah. finished up production on the movie. And Chris Evans had a crew cut and a full beard because of some other role he's playing. And that's why he's basically sleeping with his hands on his face during the scene to cover up the fact that he has a beard. That's I, cool. I, I thought that was, I mean, because I was expecting, okay, it's going to be another villain. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. Nah, it's them sitting around eating shawarma. Like, and <laughs> having that look, and you guys can relate to this. You've all gone out to eat after a shitty day at work. <laughs> and no one's really talking, but you're really glad that you're sitting there getting something to eat. I mean, that whole thing at the end where he was just going on and on about the shawarma. But, but after that, we can go shawarma, right? Right? I was just like... <laughs> So but that's awesome. it, it. It they played it straight, but they never took themselves too seriously. I thought they hit the perfect balance. No, it was it was what a comic book should be. It was fun, and and you know they keep proving that these things can be a lot of fun, and no one wants to believe it. So they keep yeah. doing things like Dark Knight, where you've got to make it so depressing. I want to claw my goddamn eyes out at the end of the film. And 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 think, wow, Batman's kind of a Batman's kind of whiny, and I should never think that Batman is whiny. Yeah, except maybe if he's complaining about his dead parents, but you know, at some point you just got to get over it, Bruce. I'm sorry. It's just, yeah. You cracked me up, dude. You really thought I wouldn't like the Avengers? I. It was it was a very very irrational <laughs> fear, but I was I was worried for you. I, I wanted you to enjoy it. I was worried. We for all your worried sanity. for you, Scott. Yeah, I know. You're a man <laughs> on the edge. You are a man on the edge, but uh, but that's why we love you. Oh, that's why I had that folder over or open. Duh. Derp a derp. Oh man, I've had a lot of those moments lately. I'm getting stupider all the time. It comes from never ever sleeping. Well, this is my non-sleeping night. Monday night is becoming my non-sleeping night because you guys. I hope you're happy. I am. If I can't <laughs> sleep, you can't sleep. <laughs> yeah, the difference is while I'm at work, you're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and jump into this. Who do you want me to bring it in, or somebody else want to bring it in? Who wants to bring it? I in? brought it in last time. What was last one? 80, 87? Is that right? That sounds right. Okay. All right. So this should be eighty-eight then, right? I think. I'm not sure. Well, that would be <clears> right if we were eighty-seven last. <laughs> yeah. Time. See, that's the thing. I don't. I don't remember for sure. But I, that does. You know what? I can check. Give me one second. No, last time was 88, so this is 89. Oh. Okay. Okay. All right, so this is 89. All right, <clears throat> here we go. Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 89, and I am Scott Gardner, and I am joined by Mr. Michael Bailey. Hey! <laughs> and Paul Spataro. Hello. Hello. 
How's it going, guys? It's going, it's going good. good. Hey, I saw this movie the other day. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or not. It had these superhero guys in it. I can't remember the name of it, but it was all right. Oh, you finally saw that Justice League of America pilot from the 90s? Good job, sir. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure you Let's did. Let's not be it's silly. Sh- Let's not be silly. So a League of Intro- Extraordinary Gentlemen. I like that movie, okay? Yeah, I was about to say, I like that movie, too. <laughs> I like that movie a whole lot, and I'm not going to apologize for it. It's just a shame that they don't make more movies where there's a whole bunch of, of superheroes that all team up together. What the hell's wrong? You know, you would think that that would be a big seller, don't you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of disappointing to me anyways. I mean, I, I just I just wish... It, it, it's like, you know, I like this group called the Avengers. And I would just love to see them on, on the big screen together. But I don't think it's ever going to happen. No. Yeah, if they do it, they won't do it right. I agree. Yeah, they'll totally fuck it up. Well, all right. I think we've run that joke in. (laughs) (laughs) So let's see. Who's up first? Who's got the Marvel for this one? I've got the Marvel for this week. Bring in the Marvel. All right. All righty, folks. We're going back to that mythical uh, time of 1999. Oh, so long ago. Are we going to (laughs) party? Yes. (laughs) We're going to party like it's 1997, Um, which was... Not as fun a year for me. Anyways, by 1999, Marvel had revamped or renumbered a number of their properties. Uh, in 97, they did Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, and Fantastic Four as part of that whole Heroes Return thing. Thor got his new number one in 1998. Spider-Man got a new, uh, two new number ones and a in a limited series, because we're talking about Marvel, and Marvel doesn't have miniseries. They have limited series. Uh, in 1998, and then Hulk got his renumbering in 1999 by writer John and artist John Byrne, though Ron Garney did the art. Uh, Byrne also had a hand in the Spider-Man revamp, mostly in the art department, but he was also responsible for Spider-Man Chapter 1, which turned into a 13-issue retelling of Spider-Man's origin in first year, instead of it being a 12 uh, issue retelling and i guess it made sense that Byrne would do something similar with the hulk and thus in 1999 there was the annual that gave us hulk chapter one and that is what i'm covering tonight hulk uh an- annual 99 because at this point marvel wasn't actually numbering their annuals they were just saying it the year it is a the story is called birth of a monster and the credits are lee weeks penciler Dan Green and Klaus Jansen Inkers, John Byrne writer, Tom Smith colorist, Sharp sharp Font and PT letterer, Tom Brevoort editor, and Bob Harris editor-in-chief, freely adapted from the works of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Stanley presents a stunning retelling of the origin of the Incredible Hulk. We open on the Grey Hulk fighting a whole bunch of Russian soldiers as Rick Jones and a bald man work at a computer bank in the background. Rick yells at the man, saying that he said he was going to get them out of there. The bald man says it is done, and then promptly gets shot in the back. We then travel to the not-so-distant past. The location, Los Diablos Base, a sprawling military complex hidden in the vast wastes of the New Mexico desert. Inside the base, we see General Thunderbolt Ross fussing out Dr. Bruce Banner because the project they are working on is already 18 months behind schedule. Banner is concerned about safety, 
Ross is not. Igor Rominsky, Bruce's assistant, enters the conversation and corrects Banner when he calls the device they are testing a bomb. It is not a bomb. Apparently, it is a firing mechanism for a gamma laser. Gamma laser. Igor then suggests that they run a grad three test protocol, which will not take more than a day. This satisfies Ross, and we cut to a diner in town where Rick Jones is being peer pressured into doing something stupid. Igor is there too, seizing Rick and his friends an opportunity, and then shapeshifts into a teenager. The now teenaged Igor suggests that they all ride towards the military base, but only Rick takes the dare. Well, Rick and a blonde, who completely disappears soon after this scene. Back at the base, we have more drama with Ross, Banner, and Ross's daughter, Betty, who is a researcher on the project. There is a hint that something dark and mysterious is going on in the background, but we have to save that bit of foreshadowing for later. Soon the test is on, but Bruce spots Rick out at the mechanism that is not a gamma bomb, we promise. He uses an intercom to try to get Rick to leave, but Rick won't move, so Banner runs out after him. Betty says they need to halt the test, but apparently General Ross is such an asshole uh, that he actually says that the test is going to go on because Banner said the thing was safe, right? So everything should be fine. Out at the not a gamma bomb, Bruce tells Rick to get into the Jeep. Suddenly he realizes that the not a bomb is going to go off anyway and drags Rick towards a safety ditch. Rick hits the ground just in time, but Banner is caught in the unleashed gamma radiation. He begins to scream, and hours later he is still screaming when he is in an army hospital. For some reason, Ross thinks that Banner and Rick are, are working together in some sabotage scheme and holds them in custody. That night, Bruce undergoes a startling metamorphosis and turns into a gray monster. The monster flees into the night with Rick in tow and spends the evening causing all kinds of hell around the base before wandering back to Banner's place and turning back into Bruce. Ross, Betty, and the MPs follow the trail back there, and we get a, a bit of back and forth between Rick and General Ross. Eventually, everyone leaves, with Betty promising to look in on Bruce later. Rick and Bruce discuss their when, plight when Igor shows up and reveals that he is, in fact, a Skrull. Apparently, the last Skrull invasion from Fantastic Four number 2 didn't go so well, and Igor was trapped on Earth. At first, he thought the laser could serve as a signal to his fellow Skrulls, then realized how dangerous the weapon was and tried to sabotage or sabotage its progress. He takes Rick and Bruce to a hidden base in Russia, but it is night at the base, and Bruce changes again into the Hulk and starts tearing up the place. A misshapen man known as the Gargoyle uses a gamma ray projector to transform the Hulk back into Bruce. The two, of the, the two, Rick and Bruce, are taken into custody, and later the gargoyle enters their cell and reveals that the Skrull that had taken them to that base had been killed when Banner changed into the Hulk. What the gargoyle really wants is to be turned back into a human. Apparently, he was a brilliant scientist, twisted by radiation, and was using the project that the Russians were working on and the Skrull towards this end. After a finger-pointing conversation where the uh, gargoyle reveals how the scroll got involved with the Russian soldiers, Bruce helps return the gargoyle to normal. The soldiers arrive, and the former gargoyle turns Bruce back into the Hulk to distract them. And thus, we are back at the beginning of the issue when the gargoyle is shot by one of the soldiers. He knows his wound is fatal, so he tells Rick where the escape missile is and tells him to go. 
Rick gets the Hulk, and they make a run for it. The soldiers converge on the dying gargoyle, but he sets off an explosive device, which causes an amazing nuclear explosion. Bruce changes back and asks what is going on, and after a bit of gargoyle killed himself, before he could tell me how to cure myself, they are heading back home. Rick is hopeful uh, that Bruce won't change into the Hulk again, but Banner is pretty sure it will be a curse he'll be carrying for a long time, but he will never stop trying to cure himself. The beginning. Um, I, I, I was a little nervous when I chose this issue because uh, I don't want to come off as somebody who is bashing Burn uh, at all because I have a lot of respect for Burn. This isn't one of his brighter moments as a comic book creator. I really thought that the changes he made to the Hulk's origin really didn't need to be made. It, it was Byrne doing, and, and, and Paul, I don't know how much of a Byrne fan you are, uh, but one of the things Byrne can do very, very well is fix problems and stories. Mm. And here, I think he was fixing problems that didn't need to be fixed. I would agree with you, and I am a very big Byrne fan. Maybe not as to the extent of you and Scott, but I enjoy his stuff very, very much. Have you ever read this, Scott? I have not, and I, you know, I didn't even know it existed. I was actually, uh, while you were giving your synopsis, I was doing a quick uh, Google search to see if this was something that I owned and just hadn't made it to yet. But no, not only don't I own it, I, uh, I didn't even know it existed. So I'd like to seek this out and, uh, and see what I might think of it. But, you know, of course... This is from an era, and you know me. I mean, I I feel like sometimes the biggest burn fan and sometimes biggest burn apologist in the world. But this is from an era that even I will admit it, it's not his best time. You know what I mean? He he did hit a slump there for a number of years, and uh, and just delivered some stuff that uh, you know just wasn't wasn't up to par. Well, you know, for John Byrne and. Uh, this is a common criticism I hear of these type of stories that, you know, he, he started being hired as the, as the reboot guy, you know, after uh, a couple really successful ones. And then somewhere along the line, um, I hate to say, you know, lost it, but maybe kind of lost it. You know, I mean, they, they weren't popular anyway. You know, this one in the, in the, um, the Spider-Man one, of course. Well, the thing is, is that. I, I think Incredible Hulk number one is one of the best Silver Age Marvel comics of all time. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really think the Hulk has one of those origins that is so solid that, you you know, if you're going to go back and revisit it, it's just that Bruce Banner got caught in a, new, a gamma radiation blast and became the Hulk. What Byrne seems to be trying to do here is update it so that if this happened seven years ago, because he's the seven-year guy. Uh, if this happened seven years ago, this would be changed, and this would be changed, and this would be changed. Uh, there, there are several references throughout the issue of General Ross being a former Cold Warrior, and they are no longer at war with, in a Cold War with Russia. So who is Igor going to be an agent for? Well, he's going to be a Skrull. Because that ties into Fantastic Four number two. In fact, the entire Gamma Project is the government's response to an alien invasion. And I'm like, you know, sometimes you just don't need to go into that. And the, and the fact that the scroll shapeshifts in public 
kind of detracts from it. And when I say that Rick Jones was with a blonde girl on the motorcycle, he was, and he's heading towards the test site, and then she just disappears. Yeah, they never I explain mean, what happened to her. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> but, they never, I guess he left her in a ditch or something, because Rick Jones is a serial killer. Well, where do you um, think the She-Hulk came from? <laughs> exactly. um, I, had never, I had never read this one until you said you were going to do it, so I read it for today. And uh, there's the page where he reveals himself to Banner and Jones as being a scroll. And there's a, a, an asterisk, and it says, uh, you'll learn much more about it in the soul-shattering limited series Lost Heroes on sale later this year. Now, I, I never read that series, and I don't have it, but I wonder if this is just a poorly executed jumping-on point to that project, whatever it was. I don't even know where, where they went with that. Did you well, read that by any chance? I. Didn't it end up becoming the Lost Generation by him? Well, and if that's Stern? the case, that was that was a, a colossal failure, if I remember right. Um, you know, I I, I I don't remember Lost Heroes, um, but it, but it, I I think it makes sense that it w- it was probably turned into the the Lost Generation, and I think that thing was told backwards or something weird like that. Uh, which Byrne would later do with, uh, in a, not backwards, but jump times in um, Generations number three. So, but this was such a weird time for Marvel anyways, because they were just coming out of their bankruptcy, and they were throwing a lot against the wall. They were revamping a lot of their properties. Uh, I liked Byrne's first issue of Hulk, the adjectiveless Hulk title. I just think that the series fell apart rather quickly. Uh, yeah, I'll so, back you. Yeah, I'll definitely mm-hmm. back you on that. And 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 again, I wanted to really like it because, especially in '99, I was you know such a fan of Burn. To not like something was just a weird feeling at the time. And like some of the little changes, like the fact that General Ross lets this test go on, is like, what are you thinking? I mean, th- that's awful. I mean, how how could no one call him? I mean, I'm sorry. If you're the head of a secret military uh, installation and there is a very dangerous test goes on and it is discovered that you allowed your top scientist to be irradiated and that somebody at some point, you know, somebody who looks a lot like your daughter said, we need to shut this down. And you said, well, it's supposed to be safe. I'm sorry. He'd be up on charges. At the very least, he'd be removed from Gamma Base, but they just—they just never talk about that. And and, and it's Burn saying, "Well, Igor wouldn't do it, so I'm going to have General Ross do it." And that's a terrible trade-off. It's just completely awful. And the whole Gamma Laser thing just never sat well with me. Peter David came up with a great explanation that what they were developing was kind of a neutron bomb in reverse in that it would destroy the gamma bomb would destroy the weapons and the tanks and the buildings but leave people relatively unharmed i thought that was a great way to explain what the gamma bomb was doing in a modern context uh and in fact peter david did take a very big swipe at this in the pages of captain marvel because i think if I'm remembering the page correctly, Rick Jones worked in a comic shop at the time, and they showed Rick Jones reading this book and laughing hysterically. 
Now, are you familiar with Lee Weeks? I know his uh, name, but I don't. I'm not very familiar with him. He had. He would. He's a classic artist. He would later come back with Peter David when Peter David returned to the Incredible Hulk uh, around 2004 or so, 2005. Uh, I really like his style. I think. I think it. Fit, uh, I think it served the story well. Had a definite Silver Age flavor to it while still remaining modern. I just don't think the story was good enough for the artwork. Like the I was, the writing let the artwork down in this. When I when I read it. I thought it looked like he was trying to channel burn. And I was just wondering if that's his actual own style or if he was adapting to burn writing it. Um, that's sort of his style. I mean, you know, it was like six years later that he was back with the Hulk. So artists tend to change, uh, over the years and subtly. So, but it looked, excuse me, it looks a lot like this. But, uh, you know, I'm not saying this was a terrible book. I'm just saying that as a retelling or reimagining of the Hulk's origin, I think it, it, it in the end, it kind of fails. And uh, I, uh, I really wanted to enjoy it more than I did because I had never really read it until I chose it. But I saw it in my collection the other day, and I'm like, well, I'll, uh, I'll just choose that one because I've always wanted to read it, and I wonder if it's as bad as I heard. And uh, yes, yes, it is. Uh, there is a Hulk drink milk ad on the back, though. Is that a movie ad? No, it's a, it's 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 a picture of the Hulk with uh, looking like he just got a money shot in his face. And, <laughs> That's uh, disgusting. And uh, it says Hulk says drink milk. Milk is good. Milk has vitamins and mineral more than beauty sports drinks, and milk has proteins for muscle. So drink milk, or Hulk will get angry, and you won't like Hulk when Hulk is angry. I just wanted to be, see him be like, milk smash! And he smashes like a carton of milk and the shit goes all over the kitchen. He's like, ah, god damn it, now I gotta clean this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I got. Unless you all had some final thoughts on it. I, I want to read but, it. I, I haven't read it. You know, I, I, I still haven't quite gotten with the program with, uh, with this new thing of us actually reading uh, each other's... Uh, selections beforehand i i guess i need to do that because more and more it seems like uh we're getting books that uh that i'm not familiar with ahead of time but uh see i enjoyed these two together as a team like you said on the on the early issues of uh what was that like hulk volume three or something like that so i'd be curious to check this out you know just from that angle and i i like uh i like lee week's art style it took me a while to kind of get used to it but i i see it as kind of a kind of sort of a bridge between like say like uh john Byrne and um um like ron garney you mm. know somewhere like right in the middle of of that kind of an art style but he came to my attention doing tarzan i'm trying to remember what the book was that he was doing but i saw it and uh and i really really dug it because i i really don't like um joe kubert art at all, mm-hmm. but I, I but for some weird reason, I always kind of dug Kubert Tarzan stuff, and the Tarzan thing that Weeks did reminded me an awful lot of that. I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but he he is a very um, like adaptable artist. Sometimes it, it does seem like he he does kind of ape um, particular artists, but without like just ripping them off or, or copying or something. You know, he's he's kind of like making their art style his own for particular projects. I think that's kind of neat, you know, if you can be that versatile. 
I I thought it it came off similar to the Spider-Man Chapter 1 books that you mentioned earlier, Mike, in that it was not, you know, it wasn't something that you read and you thought, oh, this is absolute crap, but it just kind of, you know, it had that uh, stereotypical Chinese food feeling. You know, you you eat it and an hour later you're hungry again. You know, it just, there wasn't enough (laughs) substance to it. Yeah, and, and... And some of the changes he made in that, like the the one that that stands out in my mind the most, was that instead of buying Peter a microscope, they were buying him a home computer, and that the burglar uh, that eventually broke in their house and 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 shot Uncle Ben actually targeted their house because he assumed Ben Parker was rich because they were buying a computer. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? You really don't have to go all that. You you know you. You're overthinking this, John. I appreciate the effort, but it's it's like Ang Lee's Hulk film, where they just had to explain in such scientifically precise detail how he changed into the Hulk, instead of realizing that, you know what, people just want to see him change into the Hulk. If only a movie would come out this summer that would prove my point on that. <laughs> Dude, the Hulk's never going to be in another movie after two movies that didn't do that good. And again, I think we're running that joke into the ground. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The one one scene from chapter one, just because now it came to mind, the one thing that stays in my my mind is the fact that he tied in the accident that gave Spider-Man, or Peter Parker, his Spider-Man powers, with the, it was also part of the same accident that gave Doc Ock his powers. But, and, but, and in but the wanna... scene, they show them laying in the rubble, and they're both there. And you know that that it was all one accident that caused both of their uh, changes. And I, I just thought that was way too coincidental. You know, it's really funny. Peter David did the exact same thing in a short story. And uh, there was a, there, Marvel did this for a while. It was an anthology series of prose novels. Uh, it was called Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate Incredible Hulk, mm-hmm. Ultimate. Uh, uh, and in the first one, the very first story was a retelling of the origin. It's said by Peter David and Stan Lee. And I'm thinking it's one of those cases where Peter David was just using so much material from Stan Lee that he gave him a writing credit. But mm. he worked Doc Ock into Spider-Man's origin. And the thing really read, like, if you were going to do a Spider-Man TV series, this would be the pilot episode. And it was a really good retelling of the origin. Uh, I enjoyed the heck out of it. But it was funny to see a couple years later, John Byrne, who always had kind of a tense relationship with Peter David. Oh, really? Kind of. Yeah, oh, yeah. They, they, t- they take shots at each other all the time. Hmm. Did not know that. I, I know it's weird, but still. Anyways, that's all I got. What do you got, Scott? I uh, I brought to the table something that uh, I've been meaning to read these for a while. Recently, I got on a kick where I'm uh, I'm trying to fill in uh, some holes and some different short collections that I have, and uh, and one of the ones that I'm trying to plug the holes in is the uh, Spectre appearances in Adventure Comics. And I have several. I have a stack of several issues that I've uh, recently acquired on the cheap. And I thought, well, I'll just grab one out at random and uh, and read it. And the one I decided to pull out, I pulled it out strictly because I judged a book by its cover. 
This is uh, Adventure Comics number 436. Now, this is when it also had the banner of Weird on the cover. So it's uh, Weird Adventure Comics, although the, you know, the, the title, the Indicia, never changed to uh, Weird as far as, I'm, as far as I'm aware. But for a brief time, it was known as Weird Adventure Comics. Number 436, this is the um, November-December 1974 issue. So we're going way on back for this one. Still only 20 cents. So what does that mean? It means it's going up to 25 cents real damn soon, kids. So uh, <laughs> just be aware. Um, this one's scripted by one of my all-time favorite comic book writers, Michael Fleischer. Script continuity credit here uh, by Russell Carley. And uh, editor Joe Orlando, you know, I didn't even notice till now that the uh, the artist is not credited. The artist on this is, of course, the uh, late and incomparable Jim Aparo. One of, again, another one of my favorite uh, comic book creators. One of my all-time favorite comic book artists. And definitely my favorite uh, Batman comic book artist. This time here tackling the Spectre. And it's just, oh my God, is the art beautiful in this. It's just gorgeous. Now, the reason I picked this issue out to cover, and, and indeed the, the reason I wanted to own this at all, is the cover is very deceptive. Because the cover looks like uh, these Nazi gas guys are being taken out by Starro the Conqueror. And uh, it's actually not Starro at all. It's just a big octopus. But uh, it's still pretty cool. But this story is bizarre. It's called The Gas Men and the Spectre. And it starts off at this uh, this uh, car show at the New York Coliseum. And these gas guys run in. They've got gas masks and gas guns and everything. And they gas everybody. And they actually murder everybody. It's, it's a lethal gas. And it's pretty rough stuff for 1974. I mean, there's a really nasty scene on page two. Where a little girl's choking to death, and she's going, "Mommy, mommy, I can't breathe." And I was just like, "Geez, that's that's pretty rough." And this reporter uh, is trying to convince his editor that uh, he's seen the specter, and the editor's just not buying. You know, this thing about uh, you know this uh, avenging spirit type of thing. And I'm, you know, one of the things that's never addressed in these Fleischer specter stories is exactly what Earth this is supposed to be it, it it really gives the feel that this is happening in its own little continuity where you know the the specter is the fantastical element but you know this being a dc comic you would think it's got to be placed somewhere it's got to be earth one or earth two so again you know with with the disbelieving you know the the ghost yet <laughs> this guy's more than likely living on a world with at least one Superman, at least one Batman. It's so it's kind of a, an odd attitude to adopt. So of course there's only one cop on the beat and it's a Jim Corrigan. He's always the guy that gets called for these things and he decides to investigate and he ends up tracking down this. See, this story is very bizarre because it never gives any real explanation for who is the villain, what's the villain's motivation, what, is, what the hell is this all about? This very Nazi-esque, uh, kind of portly Lex Luthery looking guy 
he uh, he's doing this gassing thing. He's sending out his people to to do this gassing thing because he ends up holding the city ransom for a billion dollars is is what he what he wants. And of course, they decide that uh, you know, well, we can't have this guy going around killing innocent people. So they send Corrigan with a briefcase containing a billion dollars to uh, you know a prearranged meeting spot. This helicopter lands, gas guy gets out, threatens Corrigan, hey, stupid, get in the helicopter, takes off, and of course, he wasn't. He was supposed to come alone, no cops, nobody's supposed to follow him, and the reporter follows him in another helicopter. Uh, evidently, <laughs> the bad guys have bad vision or something, they never notice that there's another helicopter following them in this story. So they get to the bad guy's headquarters, Corrigan hands over the money, and then the gas guy's like, well, you've seen our secret hideout, so now we're going to have to kill you. So they gas Corrigan, and of course Corrigan is the specter. So as soon as they gas Corrigan, the specter emerges. And the great thing about these stories, the absolutely fantastic thing about these stories, is that Apero, it was at his absolute creepy best with these stories. And he came up with just really cool and creepy and interesting ways to off the bad guys. It's all, this was always the best part of these specter stories is seeing what new inventive way he was going to kill people. And in this one, the uh, specter enlarges. um, What do you call these things? It's a compass, right? It's like a protractor compass type of thing. It's it's It's, one of the, one or the other. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't even know if kids even use these anymore, but I remember having these when I went to school. They're they're like they have like a pointed metal edge on them, and then typically it holds like a little pencil on the other side and you use it to like draw circles and stuff for like geometry or whatever. Well, anyway, he enlarges it to a ridiculous proportions and then he jabs it through two of the bad guys. The Nazi guy runs off and it looks like he's trying to escape by boat, and then that's when the specter conjures this giant, I don't know if it's an octopus, squid, whatever it is, but anyway, picks the Nazi guy up and just swallows him whole. And the reporter, again, you know, he's uh, been on the track of this whole thing, but this time he's, he's missed uh, spotting the spirit, catches up with Corrigan, and ask the court, you know, ask Corgan, you know, did you happen to see a, a, a strange force come through here? And Corgan's like, nope. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. And I was like, what the hell was that all about? I mean, it really, I mean, the selling point for this story is the fantastic art. Um, there's really not much story here at all. It's. Not only is it very straightforward, it's uh, it's simplistically so. The villain has absolutely no backstory. There's there's no real explanation of any of this. There's there's no beyond wanting a billion dollars. There doesn't seem to be any motivation. I mean, so why is the guy a Nazi? Couldn't he just <laughs> as easily have been, you know, Joe Business Suit, you know, or or you know, the Unabomber or something? Why why? Why is he a Nazi? I don't... I was left with nothing but questions out of this story. It wasn't bad. It was just... It felt rushed. And it felt like it needed some more pages. And the funny thing is, 
is the other reason I wanted to own this issue is that uh, it has a fantastically drawn um, Aquaman story by Mike Grell. And I'm a big Mike Grell fan, especially early hungry Mike Grell, which is just what this is. It's really, really nicely drawn. I love this art. But again, this story was the same thing. This one was by Steve Skeets, and it was this Aquaman story that itself felt like it needed like three or four more pages to make any sort of sense and, and really suck you in at all, which it, it totally failed to do. I, I was left walking away from this going, well, that was like an Aquaman super story or something. It just really didn't work at all. It was too simple and quick. So by cramming two stories in here, I felt like they both kind of got shorted and neither one of them really was particularly engaging, made a whole lot of sense or uh, was fulfilling. But man, are they both pretty. (laughs) Fantastic artwork in these. And that's pretty much all I got on this. What did you guys do? Did you guys check this out or are you familiar with this material? I checked it out. What'd you think? Uh, Well, first of all, uh, the metal thing is a compass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I, I looked it up while you were talking. A protractor is the semicircle that you use to measure uh, angles. Okay. And the compass is the metal one that you use to draw circles. Cool. And they still use both because I have kids around back to school still buying both every year. Uh, okay. Yeah, my kids have them, but I just forgot which was which. Uh, I agree with you totally. I love the artwork in this. It's great on both ends, Jim Aparo and Mike Grell. Uh, I have my theory as to why he's a Nazi is that he's a Nazi because it makes it all the more palatable when the Spectre kills him. Okay, I can. Yeah, no that. one's going to complain about killing a Nazi. There, there and if you there. look uh, on the page just after they, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, they try to gas Jim Corrigan, I think he's. I think he has a uh, monocle. Which, you know, yeah. if you have a monocle or a cigarette holder, you're obviously evil. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way you could have you know, either of those and still be a good guy. The only thing that made sense to me of him being a Nazi was... Or, or, well, I, I guess the way I should word it is what I, what I expected was going to happen and the reason was that he was a Nazi was that he was going to turn out to be like like a big deal Nazi, like he was one of the the main head guys behind, you know, the gassings that went on at, at one of the, the camps or something, you know, and, and, and really tie in this whole gas thing. And it just doesn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I think your, your theory is as good as any that, you know, yeah, exactly. Nobody's going to miss a Nazi, so... Yeah, kill him in in a horrible and and in the long run he doesn't really die any more horrible a death than the other guys do. You know, one of the guys is turned to whatever this is, turned to stone or turned into part of a mountain or something and then the other guys are stabbed with a giant compass. This guy's just swallowed by a squid or does it say squid? Yeah, it does say squid. Okay, squid, octopus, whatever. But one of those things. So, I mean, some of the deaths that happened in these were just downright brutal. I mean, there was one where like a giant pair of scissors snips a guy in half and stuff. And it's like, damn, you know, (laughs) that's some rough stuff for, you know, this era where they were just starting to try to, you know, skirt the edges of of the code, you know, and, and start to do this sort of, you know, pseudo ec stuff again you know after so long of of steering you know steering well clear of it in in mainstream comics 
They're going to get the Senate done on us again. We need to remove. We, we need to stop <laughs> comics like this. Yeah, it's despicable. It's ruining our children. Except for the fact that most of our children who are reading it are in their thirties now. <laughs> I do love the art in this, though. Man, oh man! How can you it's, not? It's, yeah. it's Jim Aparo. I mean, in the seventies when he was in his when he was in his prime. Yeah, he really is. You look at some of the angles here; it, it's just beautiful. It's gorgeous. It it really is. I I thought I had this issue. Apparently, I didn't, so I didn't get a chance to read it. Unfortunately, but I I I thought I did. So it was kind of sad, but uh, your your retelling was so vivid that I didn't really need it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there really there wasn't much to tell, you know. It's uh, you know they got some people, they want money, they get money. The Spectre kills everybody. The end. Yeah, I mean that that's really as deep as it gets. You know, there's there's not a lot to it. You know, there's no you know giant soliloquy with the with the villain going i'm doing this because you know surface people have pissed me off because i'm hideous you know none none of that you know it's like why did you sound drunk there for a second i'm doing this mole man and hits the bottle you know <laughs> i don't know see on the one hand i feel like well they didn't have enough pages to do a quality story on it but that's that's really kind of a cop out because there was so many good stories in in the sixties and you know where, where they were the split books and they only had half a book to work with anyway mm-hmm. you know and really it was just a matter of breaking up the story at a, at a key point so that you can you know tell the story in smaller increments but still tell the whole story I mean they they did it on you know tales of suspense tales to astonish strange tales on a regular basis not everything was really good but. There certainly were uh, a lot of quality stories among them, so it's just uh, not 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 a well written story, but the artwork de- definitely makes it uh, makes it worth something. Yeah, and it's a shame too because I really do like uh, Michael Fleischer's writing a lot. I mean, he's he's really a fantastic uh, oh, comic book writer, and uh, and it's doubly disappointing to me because this is one of those comics that I've seen for years, you know, those classic ads that they would have in the comics. A lot of times they would be black and white. You know, there'd be a whole bunch of different comic covers on one page and they were all black and white, which made them somehow look that much creepier. And I remember this being one of them that you would see. And, uh, and I've always thought that this was Starro on the cover because it's got that, you know, that one giant eye with the red iris in the middle and I just I just assumed that it was Starro, and and so I was kind of disappointed to find out. No, it's not Starro. I'm just a stupid squid with a giant eye. With a giant eye, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't but, think squids have giant eyes. I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, yeah, definitely. Do they? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just making the shit up as I go along at this point. <laughs> but if you say it authoritatively enough, then we'll believe you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. They have giant penises too. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> well, they so certainly got, look Paul? like them based on the way they're drawn here. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, there is that one panel as the uh, the squid emerges out of the uh, the brine there that it is uh, particularly um, uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely a, a little phallic. Yes, yes, I noticed that too. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I could unsee that now. <laughs> uh, too late now. 
So what'd you bring to the party, Paul? All right. Well, I, as we were talking about earlier, I think when it's my independent, independent issue day, I'm going to have to scrape to find stuff, but I brought Pacific comics, uh, issue number one of star Slayer, the log of the Jolly Roger. This is a February 1982 issue with a $1 cover price. And it's written and illustrated by the Aquaman artist of the issue you just uh, read, Mike Grell. Oh, awesome. And it's, it's, uh, it's got what appears to be a painted cover that's just beautiful of the character Star Slayer, who's a uh, scantily clad man with a, uh, what appears to be some sort of fire sword. Uh, and he's in some sort of a futuristic background with a scantily clad woman behind him and then a uh, a spaceship that looks like a pirate ship in the uh, silhouetted bo- at, at the, the sun or moon behind him. But it's a really, really pretty cover. And the story opens in the year 43 AD, which kind of goes against the futuristic cover that, you're, that I just looked at. It starts with a, a hunt... And there's a father and a son on, a, on an expedition, and the father is obviously teaching the son about hunting and about life. They find a wild boar in the woods, and the son picks up a bow and arrow and is getting ready to shoot it. The man stops his son and tells him that they owe the beast a fight with honor. So instead of shooting an arrow through the uh, boar, the son picks up a spear and just runs him through. Which I'm really not sure how that shows a hell of a lot more honor than shooting him with a bow and arrow, but that's the way they do it. Uh, they start to return home. And they come across some Roman soldiers. The older man engages them in battle, saying that a free man bows to no one. And he takes out five soldiers. But while this is going on, their loyal hunting dog is lost in the battle, which upsets the boy. They continue on their journey home. And as they go, the man searches the horizon and sees a wave of approaching ships. And he tells his son that he sees death and destruction of their way of life coming. They return to their village. And the man sounds the alarm, saying that they must take to the forest to defend their land. We meet his wife, who's named Gwyneth, and we learn that he's an outlander who joined that village, and his name is Torin. His father-in-law is the village chieftain, and he disagrees with Torin's position that they need to leave the village and defend their land. He tells the people to hold their ground, and Torin argues with him, saying that staying will lead to their destruction and slavery. He appeals to the people to fight, which the chieftain takes as a challenge to his authority. They're about to fight, but then Gwyneth stops them. The chieftain leaves in an attempt to make peace with the Romans, but says that anybody who wishes to go and fight is free to leave. Torin and his family prepare to leave, and they're joined by a man named Ivor, who's an old, an old warrior, but no one else comes with them. As they leave, they come across a dwelling of the old druid necromancer, who is said to be half mad. He tells them that an age of darkness is on them, but tells Torin that his destiny has not yet been written. While they're there, the boy sees a sword that he reaches for, and the old man yells at him to put it down. After they leave, the old man takes it and puts it within an anvil for protection. Now, I can only assume we're going to see that sword later, but that's it for this story with that. While this is happening, the chieftain meets with the Roman soldiers and offers them a meager tribute, which is rejected. Torin and his party see the Romans and see that they're preparing to attack. Torin engages the soldiers in battle, and the chieftain declares that Torin was right all along. Torin leads them in battle, and the battle rages on until it's basically just Torin left standing alone against the soldiers. 
And you can see it's been a long, tough battle. He's lost an eye already, and he continues to fight on. Eventually, he realizes that he can't win the battle, and he decides that it's better to die a free man than to live as a slave. He leaps off of a hill towards a bunch of soldiers who have their spears upheld, so it's pretty clear he's going to get speared in many places. But while he's coming down, he disappears before he reaches the soldiers, and then we cut to a shot of him floating in space, and then we cut to another shot where he's in a glass containment tube on a futuristic ship, and the scantily clad woman from the cover of the book is seated at a control panel, and we're told it's to be continued. And that's it for the first issue. So, this, as it turns out, was a series that Mike Grell developed for DC Comics, mm-hmm. and it was going to be a six-issue series, but then that was right about the time of the DC implosion, Right. so uh-huh. they, they didn't pick it up, and it ended up going and being taken by PC, or Pacific Comics. Uh, they, they ran the six issues, and then I believe that was where the series was supposed to end, but then it went on... Uh, First Comics picked it up, and the series ended up running 34 issues until 1985. And I think this is the earliest example I can come up with of a decompressed arts, uh, decompressed storytelling, because it's not quite as dense as the last few issues that I've picked up, or the last few issues that I've done on this show, uh, where there's just so much going on. It's pretty easy to follow, and it's pretty simple. Uh, it's a good story. I'm not trying to uh, to downgrade it, but it's just you know it's slowly where they're not leaving things out, and uh, it's overall I thought it was a good issue. The art is absolutely beautiful, and uh, it's Mike Grell at his best, I think. And and I don't know if he did the lettering because no one's credited with the lettering, but it definitely looks hand lettered and it looks different than most issues of this day. Which I find interesting. Did now? Did either of you guys read this one? No, no, I didn't. I, you know, I've seen this around for years in uh, in back issue bins on the cheap, and uh, every time I see it, I, I kind of think about it because I, I'd forgotten until you mentioned that it, it was Mike Grell. Because I see this and I see um, um, Warlord quite a little bit, and I finally started picking up the Warlords when I see them, you know, cheap enough in the in the discount bins or what. But uh, I might have to pick this up at some time because I've always had kind of a a long-standing prejudice against both, you know, sword and sorcery comics, and then you know this this kind of like John Carter-looking sci-fi stuff. But uh, but I love me some Mike Grell, and I have been trying in the last few years to make more of an effort to kind of broaden my horizons, comic book-wise. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if I would enjoy this now because it sounds interesting. No, I haven't. I hadn't read this since it was new, uh, so it's been thirty years since I read this. And at the time, I really enjoyed it. I know I had read at least the first six issues, and I think beyond that. Uh, and I, I've never been a big sword and sorcery guy, but I remember at the time I thought that this was Mike Grell's way of getting around the fact that DC owned his creation of Warlord. And I thought, okay, uh. you know, this is his creator-owned version of Warlord, uh, but. It turns out he actually created it for DC. They just never used it. Hmm. Now, is this the book? I'm trying to remember which, what the book was that um, there, there's a particularly valuable issue because um, the Rocketeer spun out of it. Is that Star Slayer or, or 
Is that? Am I thinking of the right title? No, I think I think Star Slayer started possibly in Pacific Comics Presents. Right. This this uh, I know. From this, they spun out the series Grimjack. Right. That mm-hmm. I think became. I I think that was after I had stopped with it, but I think that was pretty popular at one time. Uh, I know this has got an ad in it for Rocketeer. But I don't Sweet. think Rocketeer actually spun out of it. I'm trying to look that up real quick, and I'm not finding it. But I, I thought... Maybe I'm just remembering my Rocketeer history wrong, but I had thought that the Rocketeer actually spun out of um, another title, and I, I was thinking that it was... Uh, you know what? It was a Pacific title, and that, that yeah, it well, might it be Star Slayer. Title. But I'm just looking now at the Rocketeer ad, which I didn't really look too closely when I read it through to prep for today. And it says, starting next issue, careening through the sky, and out of these pages yep. comes the Rocketeer. So I'm guessing issue number two ha- probably has the introduction yep. of the Rocketeer. Yeah, here it is right here. The Rockers, fr- ro- yeah, Rockers. Rocketeer's first adventure. <laughs> Rock on, dude. Uh, first appeared in 1982 as a backup feature in issues two and three of Mike Grell's Star Slayer from Pacific Comics. So yeah, I was right. I, I was thinking it was, but see, I thought it was much later in the series. So yeah, I wonder what uh, I wonder what it's like trying to get a hold of those uh, those issues. What they might go for? I don't know if it's What's a lot. Issue? Let me know because I have them. Two and three. <laughs> Star Slayer two and three. Yeah. Because see, when you when you mentioned that Star Slayer, I was trying to remember why did that sound familiar. I think at one time that was probably on one of my um, my lists of uh, of back issues to keep an eye out for, and uh, I, I never did score them. Because my I think my earliest Rocketeer stuff is from um, uh, Pacific Presents, if I remember right, which by that time was like the f- third or fourth chapter in the story. Um. Got to buy it now a lot for seven bucks of one, two, and three. Damn, that's not bad. Yeah, it doesn't go for much. You got to buy it now of number two by itself for a dollar ninety. Wow. Damn, there goes my kid's college fund. <laughs> I might just yeah, exactly. The only the only ones that seem to have like a, a big price tag on it are the ones that are slabbed. And uh, I think uh, I think I go on record. Have gone on record, but it, but I feel the need to state it again that slabbing your comics is like you know neutering yourself on your wedding night. You're you're not going to have the fun that you were promised, so you really <laughs> just shouldn't do it. <sighs> Fuckers. I agree. <laughs> I get well, so that's, angry. That's pretty much all I got on this one. Me too. So let's see. Next time around, that makes me an indie, me a Marvel, uh, me a DC, you a DC, and uh, all right, yeah, we got uh, Paul's back in his uh, his native habitat with Marvel Marvel Comics. <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, I will have no problem coming up with a Marvel issue each episode. It's the independent that's going to give me a little bit of a a twist. Well, that reminds me. Do we want to uh, to tease our our secret special project that we've been working on? That uh, I, I think we're probably going to be about ready for that next time around, right? Yeah, I'll be ready. I think I'll be ready, Mike. Uh, I'll, I'm going to do my best. 
All right. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll save that tease then just in case we're not ready next time around. I'm about, uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through the read through, I think. So, uh, I, I've read some, I just haven't gotten to all of them yet. Okay. All the right, ones no, I have left are more of the peripheral ones where it's a very short appearance. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty much, I can be ready whenever we need to. Cool. All right. I think this one's in the can, fellas. What do you think? I do, too. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. We have two dogs, and they go crazy every time there's a uh, big storm. And my wife isn't proud uh, of them either. Do you have any herb shops in the area? In your uh, area? I, not that I'm aware of, but I'm sure we do. Okay. Uh, locate one. We found all-natural dog calming treats. Uh, really? Why are you laughing at, Scott? <laughs> really, Scott? Really? Laughing. That's is it a rolled up newspaper across the nose? No, it is not a rolled up new ass.